The moderator tonight is Christina Couch, uh, who is a science journalist who um, usually writes about the intersection of psychology and technology. Um, she's a former graduate of MIT's graduate program in science writing, which we are very excited about. Uh, she's written for Mental Floss, Nova Next, Science Friday, um, Discover, and is also uh, the administrator of the Communications Forum. Uh, to her left, stage right, um, uh, is uh, Azine Goreshi, right? Okay, Whew. the name like Manukin, you would think that I would not butcher other people's names. Um, she's a science reporter for Bud BuzzFeed News and the recipient of the AAAS Kavli Science Journalism Award uh, and the Everett Clark Seth Payne Award for Young Science Journalists. Um, she has, over the last couple of years, broken a series of really incredible stories, uh, including an investigative story in 2015 detailing astronomer Jeffrey Marcy's long history of sexual harassments, um, and then later that same year broke stories on astrophysicist Christian Ott uh, and a 2016 piece on microbiologist Michael Katz. Um, and these were pieces that I think made clear uh, to the public at large and to the rest of the world what in many uh, cases had been an open secret um, in different areas of science. Uh, to her left, right, yes, is Sarah Ballard, who's an astronomer and a Taurus Fellow for Exoplanetary Research um, at the MIT Kavli Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research. Uh, and she was part of the Title IX investigation against Jeffrey Marcy um, and went public with her story in 2015 and since then, she's been um, a uh, very passionate public advocate for gender equity in science, um, which is an issue that we still have an enormous way to go on. Uh, and then at the end of the table is Evelyn Hammonds, um, a professor of the history of science and of African, African and African American studies at Harvard University, uh, and the former dean of Harvard College. Um, and she was the first African American and the first woman to hold that position, which is both impressive and incredible. Um, so without further ado, I'll leave it over to them. Thank you all for coming. We're very excited to have you, and, and thank you three especially for being here. Uh, so I want to start off the panel a little bit by, uh, by talking about the experience of, of sexual harassment and specifically the experience of, of talking about it publicly. Uh, Sarah, would you mind talking a little bit about how, why you chose to participate in the Title IX investigation to begin with and, and then later why you chose to go public? Yeah, um, uh, so just as you say, it's useful to divide that into two answers. So first, why I chose to participate in the investigation. Um, I had very mixed feelings about it and one a particular thing that really helped me to navigate that complicated time and determine how I wanted to behave was thinking about who I would have needed at that time. So thinking about 20-year-old Sarah uh, and how vulnerable she was, um, the series of things that were happening to 20-year-old Sarah, who did I most long to see? Who did I most long uh, for to intervene and prevent that from happening? And I thought, I'm just going to become that person for whoever this other person is. Um, so whatever my very you know, complex set of feelings were about my own experience, including guilt and so on, um, that really helped me, that really helped crystallize um, my decision about whether to be a part of the investigation. And then there was um, whether or not to use my real name. So I was, I was not a named complainant uh, in that investigation, and, and those, uh, that documentation is, is since um, published, but, but I'm a complainant number two in that. 
So then why I chose to use my real name was twofold. First, I had tried to educate myself, uh, making use of the wisdom of other social movements, including the LGBT movement for equality. And one major feature uh, of that movement in recent decades has been um, urging individuals to come out. Um, and the reason for that is because if you know someone um, personally, perhaps who's encountered uh, the type of thing, the, the oppression or the um, type of violence done upon their person, then you feel differently about it than if it's an anonymous person. Um, so that, that's sort of a, a political gesture. And also, I wanted for, if there were other young women reading the BuzzFeed piece or other pieces, I, I would want them to think, um, well, she's not afraid. You know, if you use your real name, it shows that you're not afraid because I wanted them to think, well, then I don't need to be afraid. And um, can you talk a little bit about your experiences uh, after this has been public and, and the trajectory from, from the story going public to, to where you are now? Sure. Um, so I, I, it's been very recent, uh, for one thing. I, I was a Torres Fellow at the period of time when Azine published that piece, and, and I'm a Torres Fellow still. Um, it's been particularly tricky, I would say, because I've been on the job market, um, so trying to go up one more ring, rung on the academic ladder to the lowest rung of professor, really trying to make that leap. Um, so that has um, influenced that process in ways that have been deeply uncomfortable um, sometimes. Other times, it has been a real uh, outpouring of admiration from my community um, and gratitude from my community. So I would say the experience has been mixed. And I had resolved myself to that experience being mixed before I did it. Um, and so in that sense, I feel uh, at peace with it. I still think it was a good decision. And Azine, uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you got connected with this specific story? And, and more largely, uh, you've covered several sexual harassment cases. Um, you know, how did you become connected with that subject? Yeah. So I think, I mean, before... I started at BuzzFeed um, as the first science reporter in the beginning of 2015. And the desk was launched completely brand new. It's led by Virginia Hughes. Their MO as a desk was to um, you know, look at science through the lens of money and power and you know, who does science, who doesn't do science, what, how does that shape what is, is created and you know, what, what the public knows as science. And at the time, there had been sort of a lot of coverage of, you know, the leaky pipeline, sort of um, underrepresentation of women in different fields. Um, the SAFE study had come out, I think, in 2014 that Kate Clancy and Katie Hindi had put together. Would you mind telling them what the SAFE study is in case yeah, they don't know? Yeah, sure. So that, that was sort of the first um, quantification of, um, of the problem of harassment in, in the sciences. And it showed that an overwhelming percentage, I can't remember right now off the top of my head, but an overwhelming percentage, percentage of junior researchers, specifically women, had encountered some sort of harassment um, in, in field work. Um, and so that sort of, I think, blew a lot of people away. But again, it was sort of the, there was the level of the abstract problem of sort of why, are, why is there this underrepresentation, the quantification that they had presented, but there, there wasn't really any concrete um, personal examples of, of how this was working, um, and you know we sort of made it a, a priority to report on sexism in science, but we didn't quite know what that meant. So we reported on things as they happened. There was the Tim Hunt uh, stuff that happened, and um, you know there was uh, the issues with science, the journal Science. Several issues had come up um, with sort of 
questionable decision making in their editorial process. And then I think just sticking to that beat and making it clear that that was a priority for us to cover. I mean, I can't stress enough how these stories would not, would not happen without just the people who decide to come forward. That was not in our hands at all. And it was really um, the person, there were several people involved with leading, sort of organizing the people who eventually came forward in the Marcy case. And one of them came forward to us and told us that, you know, there's, there's this investigation. You know, Berkeley went through the entire investigation. They concluded that there was, in fact, sexual harassment occurring from 2000 to 2009. But then they have sent us this message that they are not going to do anything about it. So that's why they decided to come to us. And so when you're in a case where a, a university either isn't doing anything about it or is doing very little about it, uh, can you talk a little bit about the sensitivities in terms of reporting out a story and dealing not only with people who have been through these sometimes traumatic things, but also an institution that frankly doesn't want to talk about it often? Yeah. I mean, so I guess that's two parts. I think the for me in these stories, it's always how I deal with the, the women who are coming forward and then how I deal with the institution is and figure out what what they've determined and, and where they potentially fall short. So in the Marcy story, I had never really worked with victims before. And that's something that um, working at BuzzFeed was really helpful because we're, we're a science desk embedded in a newsroom that has made it a priority to report on sexual assault on college campuses. Um, you know, they have a lot of higher ed reporters. We have an amazing investigative reporter, Ariel Kaminer, who came from the New York Times, who wrote about Horace Mann back in the 90s. You know, so like, we had a lot of, that's not something a science desk is traditionally equipped to cover is, is a story like this. So we had a lot of advice from other people who had covered stories like this in terms of how to work with um, people who've gone through stuff like this. So I had a lot of help with that. Um, and then in terms of, the institution, what we discovered and what has like informed every story going forward is that institutions are obligated to investigate stories like this when they come forward. And so we were lucky in the case of Berkeley that it was a public university. We were able to get our hands on um, all of the investigation documents. So we knew what they had found in their own words. You know, we also had the voices of, of the victims and then we were able to determine sort of where, what they had decided to do about it. Mm -hmm. And so when you and I talked on the phone, you mentioned that uh, one of the questions that you are asked repeatedly is, is this a problem that is specific to science? Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested in, in from a historical and sort of cultural perspective. Um, Evelyn, can, can you sort of place that in its historical context? I mean, when we talk about sexual harassment cases within science, is, is that a thing that, are we in a unique place? Oh, of course not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, sexual har harassment is not unique to science at all. Right. And I would also argue that um, we've, under we've understood that there is a problem um, with sexual harassment in scientific and technical um, institutions and classrooms and labs and all of those things since at least the early 80s. And um, I think that some institutions have tried to, in a forthright way, uh, begin to uh, keep data, to uh, provide training to various groups and constituencies that need it, and uh, really accept the fact that it is a real a real issue. So it's not new. 
um, I think there are some elements of it right now that are new. But uh, I think overall it's not. And I don't think that one could argue at all uh, that science has some special, uh, there's some kind of science exceptionalism happening here. Um, there are many institutions, the law, I mean, you can go back to the uh, kind of um, uh, issues that were raised about sexual harassment in the confirmation of Clarence Thomas mm -hmm. by Anita Hill at the EEOC. Uh, that was an unfortunate place for something like that to happen, but it happened mm -hmm. there. Uh, and so there, there are many institutions that have, to, have had to grapple with this over, over many, many years. I think what seems new to people is that people don't expect it to happen in science. Um, and I think that's been, there hasn't been a sense that uh, in those kinds of scientific and technical uh, places that one would see a problem with sexual harassment. But then you also have to consider one last thing about it. The number of women in these, uh, in these fields has only increased pretty slowly over the last decade, 20 years maybe. So we don't know much, we, we know some things that were happening earlier on, but the number of women was so small that that actually made it difficult to really get at some of the structural things that were going on. Um, so, uh, so no, there's no science exceptionalism. I think that, uh, and I think one last thing I wanted to say about, about, about it at this point is that um, for people writing about the experiences of, of women, and I mean all women, so that includes women of color uh, as well, in American science and engineering and technology, uh, I think uh, people have wanted not to have the sexual harassment issue come to the fore uh, because of the intense uh, efforts that everybody's been putting into trying to get more women to come into the fields, those mm -hmm. fields. So if you're going to do that, you don't want to say there's going to be some hostility in those fields, there's going to be sexual harassment in those fields. You want to say, we need girls and we want girls to do this and we want women to do this. And so I think that kind of boosterism has sort of, has overshadowed a little bit of the real lived experience of women in these fields. Azine, is that a, a consideration for you when you're reporting these stories? I mean, is that a thing that you, that you think about? With the boosterism or? The, I mean, the push to get girls involved in STEM and sort of what an accumulation of these sexual harassment cases kind of does. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the larger goal, right, is to, I think, I think the larger goal of what Sarah's doing, and then my job as a reporter and not as an advocate, is to shed light on what the lived experience of, of, of people like Sarah is. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, with time, one would hope that there would be the type of culture change that... Um, you know, wouldn't need to, like, require that boosterism for girls to come in, you know. Um, but I was curious, actually, on, on your point, Evelyn, um, people always ask me in terms of the way that science is actually structured, the hierarchy, and the, the level of um, reliance upon a PI, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the access to data, and, mm -hmm. and collaborations, and that there, that there really is, like, a lot more room to fear um, uh, retaliation and, and stuff like that. that. That comes up all the time when I talk to people about this, about maybe some of the, the systemic structural mm -hmm. things that maybe mm -hmm. facilitate this being silenced in science versus mm -hmm. other fields. Okay, I, I mean, I think, uh, um, first, I mean, when we say science, 
I think we should try to get as much specificity as we can get into this. So we're talking about certain lab cultures or small labs. The PI, of course, is in charge of the whole thing. Right? But some PIs, principal investigators, try to have a collegial kind of culture, a collaborative kind of culture in their lab. Um, you know, not uh, have it so high stress, not have so it's so uh, competitive. So there are lots of different ways people run their labs. But of course, the, un the, the undergraduates, the graduate students, and the postdocs are absolutely dependent upon the PI, right? And so that is absolutely built in. And so how people handle that, some people handle it, as I said, well, and some people don't handle it well. And so how pervasive are the, let's just call them for lack of a better word, the, the people who are, are, are not very good at running their labs in, in anything other than a sort of strictly hierarchical, competitive kind of way, uh, how good are they at actually um, uh, addressing the kind of problems that arise when you, put, when you put your lab in that kind of, when you make your lab that kind of uh, environment? It doesn't have to be, and it's not required to do good science, but a lot of people feel it is. And the one thing about, that I think does make science a little bit, a little bit different uh, than some other kinds of, of, of organizations and institutions um, is that when you're, if you're a student, when you're located in one lab, it's very hard to change. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to change. And it's very hard to change if what you want, if the reason you want to change is because of a hostile environment that you're experiencing in the lab. It's very hard for a, a young person to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And then for colleagues to say, Oh, you want to come and work in my lab because what happened in my colleague's lab? Oh, I, you know, people want to back away from that. And, I, and, and that's not right, but that's a, that, that sometimes happens. And, but, but, and I, I guess the last one, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, is world-class scientist, being a world-class scientist does, or engineer doesn't actually mean you know how to manage people. So that's, that's the other part of the story. I mean, the two are, let's not assume that some natural alignment of good managerial <laughs> skills and being, you know, a Nobel Prize winner. There's not. In so many of these cases that we read about, uh, I mean, time and time and time again, these cases are open secrets for years. And you have, I mean, every time I read one of these stories, there are women who say, yeah, we all knew to avoid this lab or this person. Uh, in your opinion, and this is a question for all three of you, uh, you know, what are the forces that, that keep these types of stories under wraps for so long? I, mean, I can speak to the, the journalist side. I mean, when the Marcy story came out, I got a couple of messages from prominent reporters who do astronomy exoplanet stuff who said, you know, we had heard things all along, like I'd sort of seen stuff, but like, we just sort of passed it off as him being sort of flirtatious or a little bit whatever. I think you can make excuses like that. And despite knowing maybe, I think it, it was, it's hard to write or to, mm -hmm. you know, Marcy was very celebrated for good reason. Um, and there were many profiles written of him that were incredibly glowing for good reason. And it's sort of hard to square that with something that, really isn't talked about in, in the sciences, you know? Uh, yeah, I have a couple thoughts. Um, my first is um, why something like that would remain kind of availed in silence on different levels of, of the hierarchy. Um, so for students, for example, um, 
the, uh, often, uh, the experience of harassment is deeply lonely. You have no idea that it's part of a problem. Uh, for that reason, you create a narrative in which what happens probably only happened to you, uh, in which case, why would you um, sink your own um, attempt you know, to become a scientist? which is what you see around you, the likeliest outcome uh, of what will happen. So first of all, you don't know perhaps how widespread it is. Now, if you are on a higher um, level, like if you're the chair of the department and you've heard many of these things, well, why then wouldn't you act? And I've thought about that a lot. I think in order to comprehend um, fully how common harassment is, how, how commonly it's experienced by, by women in science and that SAFE study um, was one example of how deeply common it is, it really makes you question the meritocracy of the entire scientific process. Mm -hmm. Now that's a huge realization, um, and that's a huge thing for, as a leader within a scientific department to grapple with. Um, how long has this been happening? How many? You know, I, you would think as a person who's thought more about harassment than the average scientist or, or whatnot that um, I wouldn't feel just overwhelmed by the sheer number, the sheer like volume of people at UC alone. Um, but it, it's sort of difficult to fully comprehend. Uh, and then if I try then to imagine how much science has been lost by these individuals, you know, leaving the field or, or the amount of harm that's been done, it's difficult to look directly at it, mm -hmm. um, to tell you the truth. And I think that's um, another reason why people who, who long to have a scientific career based on this belief that it is um, the, the best ideas are the ones that thrive, people who work really hard, those are the people who, who benefit within science, you long to subscribe to those ideas. And um, to forfeit them is a major psychological undertaking. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's a piece of it. And I think the I think the journalists, especially science journalists, subscribe to that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you have to think about who is doing this reporting, um, what the climate of reporting was as well. I think, you know, uh, five years ago, maybe ten years ago, there was far less reporting on the voices of women who have, especially on college campuses, with sexual assault and rape. So I think that whole movement coming sort of trickled into science journalism, finally, um, and with the help of people who came forward. Well, I, I also think it's really it's really a shame, uh, and I speak as a as a, as a, someone who started out in science and engineering and became a historian of science. How many scientists, all together, scientists and engineers, I put them together, don't know anything about the history of their professions? Uh, number one. And then there's also, I would argue, and I have in many, many cases, there is no self-critical tradition, um, and not least a, a very strong one often. And thirdly, as, we were, as we've been engaged in this project of diversifying the scientific workforce, scientific and technical workforce, we have not considered the fact that the new people, the people coming in who are the new ones, the women who are now maybe used to be, when I was a graduate student here, only uh, one, I mean, I think there was one woman on my floor in Building 13 um, who was an administrative staff. What it would mean for someone like me to be the only African-American female in the lab on the entire floor. No one was thinking about that that experience was going to be different. No one was thinking about the fact that gender, race, and ethnicity would make a difference mm -hmm. in how scientific communities would function. And, the, and nobody thought about the isolation. I certainly felt isolated. Um, and certainly people weren't thinking about the isolation of other female students. Uh, and so not thinking about those things, not naming those things, actually produced a culture that made it, that, 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 
that has all this silence. So the first time when, when I was a professor here at MIT and I taught uh, Introduction to Women's, Science, uh, women's Studies, and we did uh, Women in Science, uh, people actually said to me, you can't do a course on the history of women in science because you'll discourage them from coming. You discourage the women from coming into science if we tell them what it's really like <laughs> by telling them the stories, the history of women scientists coming into uh, full participation in the scientific workforce no. over time. So how are you supposed to know? How, are you, how could you, the only choice you have is to think, this is just me. It can't possibly have happened to anybody else. We can't possibly have blatant discrimination in the scientific world. Well, Marie Curie has two Nobel Prizes, and people still say, and women shouldn't do science. I mean, really? How many men have two Nobel Prizes? I don't know, but not many. So I think, so that not knowing that history, not producing a space to talk about what scientific communities are like, they're not all the same as I said in the beginning, but that bringing, opening the door, so to speak, and just expecting all the women and minorities to just be white guys um, is a problem. And I think, so I think it's really important. These kinds of classes uh, on the history of women in science, on gender in science, or on race and gender in science are really important for the simple reason of just opening up that box and says, yes, meritocracy is important, but meritocracy is not always practice. Aside from changes in education, aside from, from bolstering those classes, do you, I mean, what other things do you feel like need to change in order to, to really broaden, um, to, to bring those issues of race and gender? Well, I mean, you have to, I mean, you just have to shine the light on them. Institutions must shine the light, shine the light on them. Institutions must put in place uh, um, guidelines for addressing these issues, and they have to make every constituency in the institution aware of those guidelines. It should be talked about to undergraduates, it should be talked about to graduate students, postdocs, and it should be talked about to PIs. Mm -hmm. Now I know, as we would say at Harvard, Harvard professors don't get trained, and they don't, but they can get educated a little bit on what these issues really are about and consider that actually the institution has an absolute legal and moral responsibility to address them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think those are the things that have to happen and people have to have, uh, and institutional leaders have to be vigilant about making sure that people understand there is a, got to be zero tolerance about this. And I think some people do and there are pockets in different places where people do understand that, where guidelines are clear, where websites are, are well, well um, uh, documented where there are uh, offices where people can go and people know about them and there are other places where nobody knows anything. Could, uh, could I speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, I think that um, not only uh, is the burden upon us to change the things which are actively harming scientists today, um, that sort of presupposes that we have a scientific culture which sort of functions more or less okay the way it is. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think uh, in order to fully incorporate individuals who have been marginalized and not allowed to participate fully in science, that requires really rethinking how departments work um, on, a, on a really basic level. So how funding is allocated, um, a major um, step forward there I thought was uh, Congresswoman Jackie Spears' bill to tie um, funding at the national level 
to whether or not uh, an individual has a documented history of sexual harassment. So that's like a, another major piece which is sort of um, necessitating that universities take responsibility. But also, when you look at, I, I often am asked this question, well, what should we be doing differently to incorporate uh, white women and, and people of color into astronomy? And I'll say, like, I'm a scientist. Here are the peer-reviewed things. You know, we should be having parental leave. We should have paid parental leave. Like, this is a major feature of the so-called leaky pipeline. Um, we should not have departments that, that don't talk about um, structural barriers. Instead, we should talk about them. We shouldn't just be like a non-racist department. We should be an anti-racist department. Mm -hmm. You know, so these are the kinds of conversations we should be having. When it comes to admissions, like the way that we think, think about merit, the way that we think about whether an individual student has promise and will succeed in the graduate program, even using the, the graduate record examination, the GRE score, that should be tossed out. That's been a biased metric this entire time, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so it really requires thinking about basically every pillar of how a department operates. It's not only kind of like preventing harassers from having access to students. Um, it requires kind of a bigger picture, which is another reason why I think folks bulk uh, at it, because in order to fully address it and meaningfully get more people um, to move through the, the pipeline, it's not only harassment. There's a number of other stumbling blocks. Um, but this one has been receiving a lot of press, and I think for good reason. It's a lot less glamorous to say, well, we need 12 weeks of paid parental leave. That's what'll make the big difference. Even though I think, to a large extent, that is also true. Mm -hmm. I mean, every time a sexual harassment case comes out, or even a gender bias case, it does not have to be a harassment case, there is at least some pushback, inevitably, that it's, uh, this is one bad egg, this is one bad person, it's not an institutional problem. Uh, in terms of taking steps to, to really shed light on this as a systemic and institutional problem, um, first of all, what needs to happen in, in terms of really highlighting this as a, as a larger issue? So, as I, as I said before, one of the things that institutions really have to do, I served as Senior Vice Provost for Faculty Development and Diversity at Harvard, uh, the very first one, and one of the things we did was a climate survey. We found out a lot of things that uh, people kind of knew but weren't really talking about. You have to, you have to um, really, when I say shine a light, that means you need to do, you need to capture the data, you need to make data public, you need to say that Deans have a certain set of responsibilities. Department chairs have a certain set of responsibilities. And people have to be held to that. And there have to be consequences if they aren't held to it. That goes back to the, um, the, the, the um, issues with the federal funding and tying that to um, uh, some of these issues. So for example, if someone has received uh, National Science Foundation funding for a decade and never produced a women's student, why should they keep getting NSF funding? Why should they get NSF funding? They've never produced a student of color. That's government money. It's for, you know, so those are the kinds of things that bring attention to the issue um, and get people who don't think it's important or would like to push it on the side and say it's not meaningful or only an individual issue or some, you know, uh, thing that happens every now and then. It would make it clear that it's not, that it's structural and systemic, and these are some of the structural and systemic uh, um, uh, reasons why we're going to change how we do business with people. So um, I think once PIs are see that their success is tied to an anti-racist uh, 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 set of practices, uh, anti-sexist set of practices, uh, all those kinds of things, if they see that that's tied to whether or not they're going to be successful as fundraisers and to be able to do their work, they, they people open their eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes them stand up. But it does 
take leadership at every level, from the department level, to the dean level, to the higher administration. And people have to do it consistently and sustain it over time. If you just have one shot because some big explosive thing happened, it's not gonna change anything. It has to be every year, all the time, people have to deal with the data. Are we doing okay? Do we need to change? Do we have some cases that are, are uh, have shown us some other areas where, that we need to work on? People have to take, take it seriously like you would take anything else seriously. Mm -hmm. I agree, and I think on that point, I mean, each of the cases that I've written about have been very different in terms of their circumstances, but in every single one, there were several complaints lodged to the university before anything happened. Right. And in each case, I mean, Marcy ended up resigning, but in the other cases, everyone is still employed by their university. Um, and you know, in the Kate's case, there had been like seven harassment claims filed prior to the investigation going through. I think what the, the larger picture here is really about accountability and mm -hmm. sort of from the department level of chairs that had been notified over and over and over again who had made excuses or whatever to the level of, of the university which was still accepting grant money and still keeping a faculty member on board. And then what Sarah said with the NSF or federal grants potentially being that lever being pulled, I think what's been made clear in all this for me at least is, is sort of the many chains of accountability that have, have failed um, and the, the many ways in which things have to change. In, in terms of, for, as a journalist looking at that chain of accountability, uh, I mean, can you talk a little bit about uh, the sensitivities in reporting on that chain of accountability? Mm -hmm. I mean, the sensitivities in terms of the institutions or? Yeah, I mean, how easy or difficult is it for a journalist to, to actually delve in there and figure out Who's, you know, who's accountable? I mean, it, it sort of varied with each case. Um, in, at Berkeley, we had, um, I was very lucky to have people who had worked on this for such a long time that there were many cases. There, they each had their, their components of the investigation. They also had people who I talked to um, who you know, as far back as over a decade ago, had gone to chairs and, and tried to talk about this. Um, in, in the case of Caltech, you know, we, I still have not seen the investigation in, in, in the Caltech case, and, that's, and the girls involved have still, as far as I know, not seen the investigations. They were not allowed to possess the investigations of their own cases despite having testified many dozens of hours. You know, there's, there's different um, things at play in private universities and public universities, and Berkeley has gotten a whole lot of attention for how it's handled these issues, mostly because they, they have to fork over the documents to show you know, what's, what's going on. And I think, I mean, we, my uh, colleague Katie Baker recently reported on um, a philosophy professor at Yale. Again, so many more layers of, of not being able to know exactly what's going on at the institutional level because they control that information. So it, it is really difficult um, working with, with private institutions um, and, and the public ones um, as far as accessing this information, but you sort of go with the sort of personal testimony you can get and then whatever sort of information you can glean otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the role of academics, advocates, uh, the media in, in this situation, uh, do you feel that 
the, the responsibility of each of those players or of any of those players is really changing or should be changing? Well, I think they are changing. I mean, uh, I think, again, when I was a student uh, uh, quite a long time ago now, um, you, can, you really couldn't, there would, there would, we couldn't have a panel like this. We couldn't talk about this. Um, and I think, so I do think things have changed. Have we gotten to, to the point where there's enough transparency, there's enough accountability or any of that? No, I don't think so. There's a lot, lot more to do. And I think there's still, and I go back to now just wearing my hat as a historian. I just think until young women and young men who are students in the sciences really are asked to critically engage with not just the content of the work, but how the work gets done. That to me would be a fundamental way to help people see, you know, we don't have to do it that way, we could do it a different way. And I think that's a big piece that hasn't really gotten addressed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people still are, will, there's still few women in certain kinds of classes. In those classes, the males in those classes often dominate. The women don't realize that they have some options. They feel like they have to go along or else they're going to lose credibility or lose the opportunity to do the work. I know of, uh, this is still happening even at the high school level in AP classes. So there are a few young women in, in AP classes in some certain fields, particularly computer science. And if you talk to those young women, they tell you why they aren't in those classes. The guys take over everything. We feel left out. We don't get to say how we feel about it. And I don't like that kind of environment, so I don't want to do it. Do you like computer science? I love computer science, but I'm not going to work in it. I don't want to be in an atmosphere like that. So the young women are actually not choosing not to do this work. They're being driven out of it because young men are being allowed to be bullies and dominating and act in ways that I think they're not even, in many cases, aware of. And I think that leads to, along the way, to sedimenting some of these other kinds of behaviors that we think are extremely problematic as people go along. Because there's never been a, a, a place where we say, these, this is not how we expect you to behave. Now, some PIs, of course, do that. I have people set expectations for their labs and their participants in their labs. And other people don't. They just sort of let people sort of soak up you know, uh, in the air somehow, how they're supposed to behave, and then they soak up the bad things, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, that's a, that's, and that's not a, that's not how it should be. So I think it really, for me, it speaks to a real need to um, redesign undergraduate education in the sciences, and I think we need more public discussion of what's really happening in science education. Uh, then we then we need more stories of just sort of the great successes. We have a lot of those stories. I like them, but I'm kind of tired of them. I mean, there has been a move in the last several years. I mean, the, this issue has certainly gained much more media attention in the last few years than it has historically. Certain institutions, and especially professional societies, have taken mm -hmm. a role in bringing out these issues and talking about them and making them more public, and, and also to institute some better measures in terms of accountability. Uh, in your opinion, I mean, are, are those measures successful? Or what do you see as succeeding in this space? And what do you see as failing? Uh, I, I'd like to speak to that in part. And, and in addition, um, the question that you asked immediately before, which is about what are kind of the roles of advocates and scientists uh, versus the media? Because that is, in part, how I visualize what success would look like. Mm -hmm. um, and even to a certain extent, when we talk about um, the myth of kind of a few bad eggs, um, when I imagine what um, 
a sea change would look like that would produce the kind of scientific culture which would be more equitable, a place in which everyone could thrive. It would no longer be a myth about a few bad people um, or good people. Instead, there's uh, humanity, um, which uh, and along certain axes, people possess more power. Then there are uh, axes along, people, uh, along which people possess less power. So even though I have been um, I'm a survivor of harassment uh, as a woman. I'm also complicit uh, in this scientific culture, you know, um, which, which excludes and marginalizes um, women of color who, in fact, experience harassment at higher rates than white women. Uh, and yet I am the person who, who ended up coming forward in this particular case, and I was treated very, very differently, I'll, I'll say, than individuals in my exact field in astronomy who've, who've drawn attention to racism within our field. You know, so in, in that sense, it, it's beholden upon me to not only think about how I've been wronged, um, but also to think about what I can do to avoid wronging others. In this sense, um, every individual scientist should adopt some of those um, ad advocacy ideas, you know, which is that um, there are ways that we can behave uh, which really um, remove us from this dichotomy that we have of like there's like bad people and good people. Um, which I think is really why a lot of people resist that um, uh, the existence of harassment, mm -hmm. you know, um, because like, well, so and so is a good guy, you know, it's not possible. Well, I'm sure he's good in some ways, you know, but he's also harassed people, mm -hmm. you know. Likewise, I've experienced harassment and probably also been very careless and thoughtless um, with other people around me and not um, treated them the way they ought to have been treated. I would want to be told, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so to that extent, when I imagine like how a scientific culture would look different, it would be one in which we really get away from this idea that like science is distinct from advocacy. Like rather, um, science is, uh, and the way that science is performed is necessarily sociological, it's necessarily political, and it would be a different kind of identity to be a scientist, ultimately. I mean, that's what I imagine, you know, long term. What would success look like? Mm -hmm. yeah. And for me, what success would look like is to see many more um, women um, who are doing science and thriving, and not so many people. I, I think there's a sort of self-selection effect that happens for me when people know when I talk about these things that people want to tell me their horror stories. But I would like to go a year without hearing any horror stories. I would like not to know about them. I would like to hear a lot more people talk to me about how excited they are about their work and how wonderful exoplanet studies are and why it makes you feel the way you, I mean, I want to hear that creativity, that innovation, that spirit. But what you hear, what I hear a lot are horror stories. And that just, is, and I know I'm hearing the, the canaries at the bottom of the mine and people who are really suffering, which says something about the scientific, scientific communities themselves. That means we have not yet addressed. So, so that's what success would look like for me, that people would feel, the people I run into on a regular basis would feel excited, affirmed, uh, would feel like this is a world that they own and that they are, are able to uh, reach their highest expectations. And on that end with, with reporting too, I feel like I get asked all the time, I think about this all the time and talk about this all the time with my editors. You know, I have had many, many people come forward to me in, after the, the Marcy story and, um, you know, what, to what end do we publish a big investigation on what happened with one person in one institution? Um, 
And I, we don't really have a good answer for that yet. I think we're still working through sort of our, what we thought for a while was, you know, if, if a story sheds light on a new facet of some sort of way that, that students could be wronged by, by university um, in, in, a, in a case like this, then we should pursue that story. But I do think it's, it, there is a time, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I worry sometimes that it, it can veer on, on sort of voyeuristic sort of fetishizing the horror story or something. And of course those things are happening, but do we really need to, to prove that over and over again? I think that um, there needs to be, like they've been saying, like moving on from that narrative in what other ways is, are these power structures leading to abuses? And um, yeah, I mean, I, this is very different, but I see it in, in a in a benign but like very complicated and emotional way, and just like how people are talking about the march for science, mm -hmm. like they yeah. can't agree on there. There is still so much wrestling to be done in mm -hmm. terms of how to talk about inclusivity, um, and there, you know, it's it's not a yeah. it's not a whatever quote unquote sexy story, but it's it's very real, like figuring out how to make that culture change happen. Are there places where you, are, are there things that are working in this space, either in terms of balancing gender bias or in terms of making science more intersectional to begin with? So I think one, one kind of thing that doesn't get covered much is the, the kinds of efforts that institutions uh, are engaging in, whether you consider them to be uh, completely successful or not. So I would like to see a great story on the National Science Foundation's ADVANCE program. ADVANCE gives big institutional grants to universities to do uh, just some of the kinds of things we're talking about, to do uh, training of department heads for searches, to, to get people to deal with the, uh, the underrepresentation of, of, of native-born minorities in their fields, to get them to think about um, um, parent-friendly, parent and family friendly policies that can be put in place. We put in place one at Harvard called Research Enabling Grants. And it's if someone needs to spend, a young untenured person needs to spend some extra time with a family member, typically a small child, they can actually apply for a grant that will allow them to get either two more hands in that lab that can do some of that work and free up some of this person's time. And it's gender blind, so it could be a male or female who could apply for it. Uh, or they could get another a piece of equipment that could automate some part of what they need to do. And so those grants were, were, were highly sought after, and basically you had to say to your dean that you weren't going to use the time to write another paper. Okay? You were actually going to use the time if you, uh, and this was directly directed primarily at, at men, that they weren't going to just grab the kid and throw it in daycare and go and write another paper. No, you were actually going to spend time with the kid because that's what you were getting the time for, okay? <laughs> to be with your family. Um, and so those kinds of, of new kind of rubrics, you know, uh, childcare subsidies for graduate students so that you can actually not have to be in this long period of time where you have to think about whether or not you can have a child and have a, a life as a productive scientist. So the advanced program, I think, has been extraordinarily successful at putting those kinds of uh, practices and policies um, uh, in place. And many universities who've gotten the, the top of those grants are, are doing some amazing things with that money. Mm -hmm. So I, like I said, I'd love to see people write more about that.
Okay, uh, this seems like a good time to open it up to audience questions. If you have a question, uh, first of all, we'd love to hear it. Uh, if you wouldn't mind going to one of the two microphones, um, if you wouldn't mind stating your name, that would be great. Um, but of course, you don't have to. I just, I'm Joanne Cammons. I'm the founder of our local AWIS chapter. Um, and I would just like to say, I cannot believe this room is in out the door. Um, this is an amazing panel. So I'm sad. Um, I'm so happy to be here hearing you, but I'm super sad that there aren't 500 people in this room hearing the story. So that's my struggle. How do I get people to listen? Um, so I speak to hundreds of postdocs a month. I do a lot of career seminars. I speak a lot about diversity and implicit bias. I do implicit bias training. People come talk to me. I have to say, the advance grants are lovely, failing miserably. They're often administered by incompetent people, unfortunately. We can I talk about it ones, later. the best ones, not Yeah, the best them. ones. Uh, we can talk <laughs> about it later. Failing miserably from a diversity perspective, helping a little bit on a career perspective. Um, I speak, again, I have a broad knowledge of many universities, so I'm sad about that as well. Um, so what do we do? Because my problem is, you know, the woman that comes up to me and says, I interviewed two postdoc labs, and I interviewed the people who were in the labs before like you told me, because that's what I tell them to do. Get somebody who's left the lab over beer and get the real skinny on what it's like to be there, what that PI, are they a manager? And one of the PIs told, one of the people told me that the PI made a man on a, on a paper, first author instead of a woman, because he needed it more, which of course is completely unethical, even though the woman should have been the first author. She chose that lab anyway. And then had a miserable experience because the PI was a misogynist and unethical, essentially. So how do we get the message out in such a way that the young scientists, I mean, again, we have to start at the bottom of the pipeline with the eight-year-olds and the four-year-olds, but how do we get to the postdocs and grad students and students and get them in this room, get them understanding that they can demand better behavior, mm -hmm. better performance, better management? Um, to me, that's a gap that we're having. They're totally at the mercy of this power structure. How do we get them voting with their feet, pick good PIs? Anyone? <laughs> seems like an, I mean, I, I'm probably the, not the one to speak to this, but to me, that seems like an expectations issue, right? There's seems like there is an expectation that that is something that they might encounter in any lab, right? Um, that, those diff, that sort of uh, par for the course in some way. Well, I think that's right, but I also think, I, I understand how easy it is to be pessimistic, and, and I can understand how, to be, how easy it is to be pessimistic by, about something like the advanced program. But before we had that, we couldn't have any conversations. We couldn't have, no institution was going to put the kind of money that Advance has put in to deal with these specific kinds of issues. Whether they've been managed properly or not, but in the cases that I know of where it's good, it's good. And of course there are places where it falls off the cliff and it's not good. But in, in the same, I, I, I'm gonna stand by this and say, um, we really can't, uh, if institutions are not gonna put up their own money, the imprimatur of, of NSF for these things was an important, a very important step. You know, for the fact that we don't have an overflow room of postdocs and, young, and other folks in here, um, I think just speaks directly to the problem. Are you supposed to take time on uh, between five and seven on a, what day of the week is this? It's Thursday, and be uh, in here talking about this kind of stuff? Really? Yeah. 
<laughs> so, I mean, my, I mean, my advisor, who I, I love dearly, would have said, now, physics is a very demanding mistress, Evelyn. I don't know if you have time to do that. Uh, but you sneak, you know, I was the kind of person who would sneak around and try to find the places where these conversations were happening. The fact that people still don't feel comfortable here at MIT is a very serious issue because some of the things I've been talking about without naming MIT specifically have been going on here. There have been conversations about sexual harassment issues. There have been reports to the faculty on a regular basis about sexual harassment because when I was secretary of the faculty here, Every year we talked about, in the springtime, we talked about what had happened in the year. So people were trying to put these things on the table to shed light on them. But I have to say, again, we're talking about some deeply ingrained attitudes about what it means. And I think we've been uh, to bring in, uh, not bring in, to open up science and technology to a broader range of people than had been in the past. And until we can really have that conversation about what exactly is happening, I think we're all going to be sort of fighting, you know, throwing arrows. I feel like I'm throwing arrows at a big dinosaur. You know, sometimes it hits the right place and they say, ouch, and something changes for a little while until they feel better. Uh, one of the ways I like to think about um, a, a response uh, to your question, which kind of touched on how do you engage different people, you know, at different stages. I say to myself, you know, like different medicine for different people. That's something I'll often repeat to myself. So I'll engage very differently um, with a graduate student, you know, who's approaching me, who's encountering um, harassment, you know, in real time, than I will with like a department chair who I get the chance to engage, than I will with other postdocs. Um, one thing that I uniformly think about is that there exist as many experiences in science as there do people, yes. um, and there's also a, a huge just mental health crisis within academia. So that means like every individual's challenge who you're talking with is informed by their own history, their own trauma, and also their goals and aspirations are distinct. So one thing I'm almost always recommending to people is to make use of therapy, you know. Um, <laughs> It, I mean, it's huge. We kind of laugh about it. I mean, it's a huge problem in academia. It's sort of laughably huge. Um, depression and, and anxiety and so on. Because when it comes to individually guiding people, that means getting into, like, to really guide even a single person means getting into, like, the real nitty-gritty of that person's hopes and fears. That's something, frankly, I'm not trained to do, you know? Uh, to that end, I often find myself urging that person to identify um, a set of tools which will work for them. And that toolbox isn't the same uh, for different people. You know, so um, anyway, so that's one thing I basically always recommend. And then as far as whether people come to things, I just like meet people where they're at. It's great people came to this. It's great MIT held Yay it. Yay to you, you know? guys. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, um, so you were um, saying how you were the only um, female person of color on your floor in your lab, um, and I was, and how isolating that was. And so I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on that experience. You know, why was it isolating? What was that like? And what would the presence of another person of color, female or male, another person like you, you know, how would that have benefited you? How would that have helped? Uh, well, it would have helped because most people would have thought that. Uh, not so many people, I like to think, would, have, would assume that I was a, a graduate student instead of assuming I was the, uh, the uh, a secretary or the janitor. Because there were so few women of color around that they, most people didn't think I was a student. I didn't want to wear my MIT t-shirt every single day, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I mean, I think that 
that the isolation is just built in when there, are, there were 50 students in a class, 50 doctoral students, and there are three African Americans, two men, and uh, no, there were four of us in our first year because this, uh, uh, two men and two women, and the second woman, um, she dropped out after, in, in January of our first year because she said, I am not gonna do this. This is too hard, I'm not gonna do it. So I'm like, please don't leave me. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the ice, I mean, it's just the fact that nobody would ordinarily assume that I was a student. Um, and that I was someone, because of, of, of my race and gender, was trying to do science. So that would have made a significant difference if I had been in an institution where people were actually, you know, uh, affirming my choices and affirming my presence. And I'm not, so I'm not saying, uh, I really don't want, to, want, don't want to leave the impression that it was uh, an actively hostile place for me. I'm, I'm just talking about having to come to terms with that experience, that I wasn't going to, that I could almost guarantee that at least once a week somebody thought I was the janitor. Uh, and I, you know, at some point you just say, Psh, okay. Or and sometimes I'd say, no, I guess I forgot that garbage can today. What can I tell you, you know? You just play it off. I mean, you can't spend your life dealing with that. I mean, because I'm, I was here to do something else. So that's something you have to learn. How you want, days you want to fight, days you don't want to fight, let it go. Um, and certainly part of what I had to do was educate my colleagues and my teachers and my mentors. And I'm just thinking about um, Millie Dresselhouse uh, recently passing away. She for a while had an office on the floor that I was, um, that I was on in Building 13. And you know, Millie really was very actively, openly encouraging uh, all students to come to the lunchtime meetings that they used to have. And so that was a place that was open and everybody felt uh, really welcome. I mean, there's a lot more I could say about my experience, but that's just one, I mean, her doing that just made me feel less isolated just by opening up her, her lunchtime session for us, so. Um, my question is about um, how to deal with situations where even a really low bar of expectation isn't fulfilled. Uh, by people in power. My, my specific example is from MIT, which I believe is correct, but I'm sure it's worse in other places, which is um, the harassment training you do online, which is this tiny, laughably small uh, questionnaire training thing you have to do online in the privacy of your own office. And I don't think MIT has been successful in getting the established uh, staff members to just do this 10-minute thing. And I've talked to some of the people at Title IX, and they said incoming staff, they do it as part of their registration, but they can't convince the established staff and professors, the ones that are most likely to be in a position of power and commit harassment, they can't get them to do it. And so other than just waiting until they retire, um, uh, disappear somehow, which <laughs> will take a long time, I was wondering if you have a, a, a fast approach uh, that isn't shaming, although I'm open to that. <laughs> I vote for shaming. I vote for organizing. I vote for organizing. I, I really do think it matters um, that if, if uh, a lot of things that people have tried to do around here for a long time are, are now sort of being done in perfunctory and, 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 and in ways that are not actually helpful, then I think it's just time to start talking about it. I am a firm believer in talking about it, organizing people. I mean, there's, safe, there's some safety in numbers. There's some safety in, in getting other people together and, and making a case, and making that case you know, loudly and, and visibly. 
um, I truly support that because I think um, your silence won't protect you. It just won't. And I think in the wake of, of the Marcy case, there was a huge shakeup in the Berkeley Astro Department. At some point, they stopped answering my phone calls, but they, <laughs> they definitely, there was an overhaul, I think, at a university level or at a UC-wide level of what harassment training is required. Um, I'm not sure sort of what exactly changed about it, but I think there is a space for shaming in, in that it led the UC to be, to take a good hard look at itself. Um, and I would hope that sort of ripples outwards. I think, uh, like you mentioned, the, the professional groups stepping forward and, and having that as a central part of um, conferences, you know, just sort of loud and clear saying things that before were sort of assumed. Um, but I think that problem of it still being sort of viewed as an inconvenience is, speaks to what's going on here more broadly. I've definitely heard of other places, so not any place I've ever been, um, but places that I've visited, or not any place I've ever worked uh, or been a student. But I have heard of places where there's just like an equity officer who visits every department. So that has to happen. That equity officer is at the highest levels of the university. They have to meet with the chair, or they have to meet with the faculty, and then there's a description of like anti-bias training. So people have to be physically present in the room, or else you're not gonna, that person's not gonna sign off on it. Now that's at places where um, they seem to take equity more seriously, you know? But it's an example that I thought of in my mind for at least that's something, you know, where you would be required to be physically present in a room. At the end of the day, you can't make somebody listen. Um, and you can't make them internalize an idea just because you'd like them to and it's the right thing to do. Um, but you can make people be physically present, you know? Or you can make people take an online questionnaire. I thought we had to do that just to get use of our email address or something, I forget. <laughs> I will say um, that Berkeley so. had, uh, I forget the exact name of the title, but the former chair of the Berkeley Astronomy Department right. later became the, the head of the Office for Diversity and vice Inclusion yes. at Berkeley. Vice Chancellor. Yeah, Vice Chancellor of Diversity and Inclusion, Gabor mm -hmm. Basri. Mm -hmm. And that was before all of this came out. Um, he was one of the people who sort of shielded him and viewed him as a friend and colleague. I forget the exact quote of when when the allegations first came out, but they, it was something to the extent of like, let us all feel sorry for him at this time. You know, personal biases can exist even when those positions exist within. That's where you need the shaming. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So, I mean, one of the things about bias, sort of the water torture, I guess, you know, you said it's not over, it, you deal with it every day, but it's, it's the little things. It's the water torture of implicit bias. and harassment and comments and language. And, and so one of the things that have been shown just scientifically, so we're scientists, right, is that if you don't do it all the time, people forget, right? So when you're recruiting, you have a recruiting committee that's like, um, uh, they, take anti, they take implicit bias training and then they recruit. That year, they do better, right? And then next year, when there's some turnover in the committee, they slide back into their old ways. So I think the five-minute training that you take is not enough. I, I think, well, I do believe in celebrating the positive stories as well, and I really appreciate that's what AWIS is about, that mm -hmm. giving you know mm -hmm. visibility for women. Mm -hmm. That's what yesterday was about. Twitter was so fun yesterday, right? Um, but um, you know, I, I think we do have to have required, mandatory, in-the-room reminders more than once a year. Um, more than you know, uh, just a constant sort of required um, uh, awareness heightening to make, you can't change people like you say, but if we don't do something constantly and regularly that's required and there's meat behind it, 
you don't get your email address. You don't get any money. You don't get your paycheck. Because if there's no meat behind it, nothing will happen, right? So um, I, I think it's that constant, steady level of reminder that we have to get to. One thing I can say about the uh, sexual harassment training, um, in literally every job where I've had to do some sort of sexual harassment training uh, in order to onboard, is that these programs, especially when they're in online formats, when they're very short, really lack any sort of nuance. So <laughs> there's a lot of like, don't touch that, but not a lot of like anything that's a shade of gray or, uh, I mean, so much in terms of gender bias is just places where you don't know if the motivations why somebody is saying something or doing something. And so I have never been through uh, any sort of sexual harassment on uh, training that, that even remotely comes close to the level of nuance that is actually present in any of these situations. Um, and so it would be really great uh, <laughs> if MIT, as well as everywhere else on the planet, um, yeah, could, could address what sexual harassment and what gender bias actually feels like. I feel like none of these programs ever talk about what it actually feels like. That's why it's such a low bar, and that's why it's even worse that they won't do this five-minute thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, this actually dovetails pretty nicely. By the way, I never had to do a sexual harassment training, even though I'm staff at MIT, so I'm confused about that. But They're going to teach you, don't touch that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, be, be ready for it. So. So I'll finally know what not to touch. But um, so Sarah, you mentioned guilt at some point, and I'm not sure if this is exactly what you meant, and I'm curious to hear that. But um, one of the things I really would have liked to know in my 20s is that if someone is in a professional relationship with me and has professional power over me, that it's not my fault if I'm sexually harassed, even if I was wearing something sexy or if I went along with certain things because I didn't know how to say no to them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on the value of teaching students or women um, in science to recognize when something inappropriate happens uh, because that, ha that needs to happen before they can even make use of any institutional structures to report it. Mm -hmm. And But I'm also curious what you make of it because uh, some, one part of me feels like this might be an additional form of victim blaming. It's like it's again putting the onus on women to identify these things rather than teaching the men not to sexually harass. Yeah, um, your, your question is a complicated one. Um, uh, to first speak to the part about guilt, um, I've uh, advised other um, young women who've, who've either chosen to report or, or not report just to kind of help them sort through their set of, of complicated feelings. There's often a, a few things that I actually recommend. Um, one is that I think guilt is present in every single story. So it is an illusion that there exists some level of cruelty where, and the, the thing that happened is so heinous that that person will be like, it clearly wasn't my fault. I think there exists no such thing. Um, which is why I've said to many people, the guilt that you feel is part of this process. It's inextricable from it, is that you wonder whether you're complicit. Um, there, that's a moving goalpost, that there ever could be anything bad enough that you wouldn't feel guilt. Um, for that reason, um, it's illusory to say, well, you know, if it had been this bad, maybe then I should report. There is no such thing as this bad, then you would feel okay about it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I say is, um, I often use this tool myself. I'll think to myself, what happened to Sarah 
it, it's not Sarah in this story, it's another young woman that I know and I really admire. Well, does she deserve justice? Um, because I'll often think to myself, well, maybe I did this or that. Perhaps I, I, um, I didn't uh, set clear boundaries like I should have as a 20-year-old, as an undergraduate, you know, interacting with some professor. It, it seems very silly to say that out loud, but I really would have that feeling. But when it was someone else who I knew and admired, well, I would say to myself, of course she deserves justice. She shouldn't be treated like that. It was so clear, like the scales really fell from my eyes. That's something else that I use. Um, and then I often like to, uh, when I'm advising people about um, whether, uh, you know, when they're thinking like, was this harassment or whatever, there's a, a tremendous amount of, um, you know, it's not my role to forgive, but I do say like, there's no right way to behave in that situation. There was no right way to behave and there was no wrong way to behave. Like, you froze because you didn't, you were overwhelmed and you didn't know how to behave. Um, and so that's an okay response. Like, um, part of the, um, uh, specifically when I mentioned guilt, like around the Marcy thing, was because he also materially helped me in my career. Um, so it wasn't a clear-cut story mm -hmm. of a uniform harm. Mm -hmm. He helped me too. Mm -hmm. So I grappled with that feeling, well, well, shouldn't a person forgive? You know, because there is that kind of, especially in universities, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, we'll just look the other way, whatever. And I thought to myself, um, well, firstly, um, even if a person apologizes or something, that doesn't mean the wrongdoing never occurred. You know, it did occur, regardless of how I behaved. That's uh, inarguable. That person shouldn't have behaved that way. And furthermore, there's no indication that that behavior will stop. You know, uh, and so I use that too. I often use them. Um, I try to view other women with a, with a clarity I find very hard to view myself, you know, and whether they're deserving of justice and good behavior. Um, I'll think to myself, um, uh, what, who was, who was it that I needed in that situation? I'm going to be that person, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I guess I'm, what I'm sharing is sort of a complicated set of feelings, like in response to your question, because I feel like it's a really complicated situation. But I do feel like budging that guilt for me often requires like thinking about it in specific ways. Like otherwise, I will feel um, a real overwhelm, which I think is common. Can I ask you a question? Oh. <laughs> me or, me or, yeah. Sarah, can, yeah. Uh, what do you think you would have needed most as, you know, when you were, when you were Sarah at 20? Mm -hmm. I received it. I mean, that's why I'm here today. Mm -hmm. Because, um, so the, the pattern of uh, harassment that I was experiencing was escalating uh, to the point of, like, physical contact. So um, I remember talking with a friend in the department and in our... Um, you know, a, a very junior way, we were trying to figure out how I should approach him and make the situation stop. Mm -hmm. And we needed um, letters from him, letters of recommendation, uh, in order to have any chance of achieving our ultimate dream of becoming astronomers. So I remember saying to her, even if I approach him and it goes really badly, you should still ask for that letter. There was like this calculus that we had of like, even if I don't make it, maybe you'll go incrementally mm -hmm. forward. But I never had to have that hard conversation with him. His behavior miraculously stopped. It seemed like magic to me at the time. Now I know it was because he was confronted independently by another by a graduate student for harassment of another undergraduate altogether. So he was confronted by a more senior person. And, and so he wrote me letters. He ought to have written me great letters. I was a great student. And I went on to achieve success. I don't know what would have happened if that individual who was in the BuzzFeed piece, you know, if, if Ruth hadn't um, helped me in that situation. Mm -hmm. I received that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I didn't, um, 
it didn't mean that I didn't uh, experience any harassment, but I did get a chance to go forward, and that was because an older person mm -hmm. uh, intervened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which happened again with complainant four, right? Um, I'm curious, sort of in the wake of becoming one of the few, like, faces of this for in science in particular mm -hmm. and you've you've taken on so much in terms of speaking about this being at panels like this I saw you on CNN I feel like once that did happen um, <laughs> how <laughs> but like and then I'm sure privately I'm sure you your inbox and my inbox after writing these stories is full mm. I'm sure your inbox is in a much more real way like you know do you have women coming you must have women coming to you asking for help all the time like how do you mm deal with that and also be doing your postdoc and yeah oh um <laughs> 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 i remind you about your inbox no, no. Uh, <laughs> um, a major way that i've uh, dealt with this entire situation is with therapy myself you know um so that is a place where i have um the opportunity to engage with a person who is trained in how people process trauma you know, um, and to help me um, process it myself and also to help me develop this set of skills. Like I thought very carefully about whether I even wanted to become uh, a complainant and then whether I wanted to use my real name and so on. I thought very carefully about those things uh, ahead of time. And so I, I made those choices mindfully based on the emotional resources I had available at that time. And one piece of my toolbox as a scientist is that I adapt my responses to things based on the availability of those resources. You know, so on a given day, um, sometimes I will respond to people. Uh, you know, like that young woman who was like, I feel like I have imposter syndrome, but about like harassment. I feel like it wasn't bad enough or whatever. Then I'll think like, okay, I have the resources today to respond. Other days I'll say, you should go to Jackie Spears' office, you know, like because that particular congresswoman now is like, I'm collecting all of these stories, I can help you, I have resources. Other days I'll just say right to this person. You know, other days I won't respond. Um, and so I try to adapt my response based on what I have available. And um, I try to find a, a balance. Now that's a work in progress. Um, <laughs> but I'm hopeful about it. I think it's sustainable, um, which was a major piece of what I ultimately hope to achieve, is that I would stay in science. So as a, partially as a response to um, all these surfacing harassment cases in particular and gender inequity studies in science in general, there's been um, a formation of a number of student advocacy groups geared towards uh, women. Um, and I was wondering what you guys view as like the best role of those groups kind of in, in helping with these things. Well, I think I said earlier, I think the, the, the role of those groups are to keep the issue, you know, um, front and center for people to deal with, and and not just um, you know accept that um, if people say, well, we have this implicit bias training. If the training's not doing anything, then say it's not doing anything. If people aren't really finding the atmosphere um, and environment to be improving, say it's not improving, and continue to push for for the kind of change that needs to happen. I I think that's kind of you know part of your job. Uh, for these groups and to have the, the institutions be accountable to you. Uh, I think there exist as many possible roles within groups as there are people in that group. Um, so I've uh, borne witness to um, 
uh, groups of women in scientific spaces that are there just like simply out of a sense of play, you know? Um, they're just there to spend time with one another. I've been parts of mm -hmm. other groups in which um, it's much more explicit, the expectations of different group members. Okay, what are we gonna do this week? Um, well, it's been delegated that so-and-so will pick whatever resistance task we're gonna do this week. Um, and then it's sort of um, more sustainable that way. It's like activism work is more sustainable that way because you don't feel so isolated and you don't feel overwhelmed by a feeling that you have to do everything at once. Rather, it's been diffused to a group. You're doing it together. Um, I've also seen groups that operate, frankly, as like group therapy. Um, you know, there's some books written about that actually about like women scientists who join in groups and then um, part of the function of that group is to um, just have a space where you can give voice to the things that are troubling you the most. Um, and then there are groups where it's like you are in a group and one of the things you do is like mentor younger women, you know. Um, I think that there can exist so many like helpful models um, and it ought to uh, vary dependent on what the different members of the group have to give and also what it is that they um, are struggling with most, you know, and surely that varies from like campus to campus. The Women in Astronomy blog was was really crucial to bring mm -hmm. this forward, mm -hmm. both like privately, I mean on the, on the blog itself, people sort of anonymously discussing the problem for a while and then eventually gathering all the forces together in order to come, yeah. come forward publicly. I yeah. mean, there were so many people who were sort of shepherding that process and I think that to me was really a shining example of how a group like that can like decide to act mm -hmm. on, on something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Edward here from MIT. <clears throat> and I want to say, uh, first of all, that I know Sarah for her scientific contributions, and they are so impressive. And secondly, the kind of advocacy that's being given here is exactly what all scientists should aspire to. So I'm glad that this is being recorded because I'm hoping we can use it to replace one of those five minute <laughs> check the box surveys. I wanted to ask though about the um, prospects for uh, interventions by scientific societies. So I, I think of, for example, the American Astronomical Society was really quite um, vocal and active through this in its leadership in, in getting a code of conduct for its meetings. And now that code of conduct uh, concept has spread to most scientific uh, societies. But there are many more steps that could be taken. There are things like the, the Vanderbilt and earlier the mm -hmm. Baltimore Charter um, mm -hmm. in, in astronomy. So what do the panelists think um, the role of professional societies could be in trying to short circuit some of the issues that the universities are not so successfully dealing with? So I, I think, I mean, you know, the AAAS meeting was just, just happened a few weeks ago. And so I, I think that, you know, again, the sort of um, open secret of these kinds of issues, I think, just simply has to be addressed. And the, and the leadership are the people who can do it. So having panels at AAAS, having people actually talk about it, having people maybe talk about what happens at some of those parties at AAAS. Um, and when conferences happen, that's another place, where, a venue where some, some uh, code of conduct uh, conversation needs to happen. Um, but I think that, it, it, to me, it's about exercising leadership, really and truly. And I think it's been tremendous, for example, with the American Physical Society, that you know, people actually publishing the data every year about um, not just conduct specifically, but also 
on issues of diversity. I mean, it used to be you, couldn't, you could call and beg and plead and nobody would ever tell you uh, anything about the numbers. Now you can actually go and they give you a PDF and they're happy for you to have it. I mean, that's a big deal. That's a big difference. But I think the code of conduct conversations are just starting. And we, we just have, we're gonna have, to, and it's, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be easy. And I think that's something else that I, I think Sarah's really showing us here. I, I look at this from, from a vantage point of 20 years between here and, and Harvard, and I know the kinds of things from, from Nancy Hopkins and Lottie Balin and all those folks who worked on Women in Science Report at MIT and the Gender and Science Report and all kinds of minority reports and how long we've been sort of pushing this ball along. And it, some days it feels like, you know, and then, you know, talented young women are still here in 2017 telling stories that I, don't, that I just find. Amazing. So I just think that we are making just, we've only been doing incremental change. It's time for a lot bigger push. And I want the science journalists to help us mm -hmm. make no, that think, push. No, I think the, the professional society is something really important. There's men in this room. Um, so a lot of the things that I do through AWIS are just women. And that's mm -hmm. great. And that's great for the therapy aspect. Every other Thursday, Alan Danielle, Lottie Balin was our first AWIS speaker ever mm -hmm. for this chapter. Millie was mm -hmm. the second. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that, and that was all women, you know. So that's really, really important for solidarity and, and the therapy part and the advocacy part. Um, but when it comes to real advocacy and making change, you've got to have men in the room. And so I think the professional societies are the place where there are a lot of men and, and where that, that's where the conversation can start um, because not that many men come to our AWIS meetings. A couple, right. not that many. I think one thing that came up for me after the first two stories came after uh, Marcy and Ott was people were like, what's wrong with astronomy? Like, yeah. oh. it must be astronomy's like really messed up. And I was like, no, there's just a group of people within astronomy who are like really deciding to like think about this stuff and talk about it really openly and are willing to like inconvenience their elders, you know? And that had, I had written a story about the, the Mauna Kea putting the yeah. telescope on, on this mm -hmm. mountain in Hawaii. It was, it was a similar group of people who were willing to question, you know, whether the people in Hawaii wanted this new giant telescope to be built on a mountain they considered sacred and what role science had in engaging with indigenous communities. And it was, it's, I think that, that was, I think a committee a subcommittee of, um, do, you, do you remember well, what just it's like, called? Maybe. I remember there was like a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's uh, committees within astronomy for like on the status of minorities and the status of women. It yeah. could be some group within that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that role of sort of having groups like that within bigger societies trying to shed light on stuff works. Um, One major suggestion or concrete suggestion that I have um, for a professional society or for some um, scientific group is uh, about the question of like early reporting. So like a major um, problem I think is oftentimes uh, a harassment of an individual or perhaps it's like a pattern is allowed to escalate to the point where truly so many people have been harmed, including that individual, him or herself, um, to a point where perhaps they can't even work around students anymore, right? Like it's long past the point of like incremental change. Mm -hmm. So the question is, well then how do you encourage early reporting? So there exists um, 
software to do this, like Callisto uh, is one example. So that is a, a type of software in which you would um, make an anonymous report about something that occurs and that is sealed. Now there's an escrow on those. So if a particular individual is harassing many people, let's say at a AAS meeting, and that probably would be the case if it's happening one time, it's probably happened more than once, then at that point, mm. the people who were operating that um, software would become aware of the problem and then have a, a hint about how to proceed. So that's something which is very tricky to do because it would have to be implemented at every university, mm -hmm. for example, and then, the, and then how would you end up reporting if it does happen at a conference, which is a major place um, where harassment occurs. So that's one example because there's a lot of talk of like, well, who would host such a thing, literally? Like, what, what would the server look like? Well, who would pay for it? Um, and things like that. So that's one role I think that professional societies could do is like setting an example of, here's how we're going to uh, demonstrate that we um, want to get on, we want to get on the ball, you know? Like we want to find out where harassment is occurring within our meetings and whether, um, you know, we can kind of prevent escalation of it um, before we lose um, the younger minds and before we lose our leaders in the field um, who are m like behaving very badly, you know? So um, anyway, so that's a hope I have, like a fond hope. But I think that also requires institutional transparency, which we haven't had up mm. to this point. Mm. I mean, the DOJ, the Office of Civil Rights, has numbers on every university's sexual assault reports now. Yeah. We don't have that level of transparency for faculty. Yeah. And it's very hard to get that information about faculty. Berkeley, to this day, has never fired a tenured faculty member. Yeah. And there are lots of issues in that that I think haven't yet been grappled with. Um. Uh, first, thank you all again. Uh, this has been a, a, a very powerful panel, and a lot of people do watch them online, so That's cool. um, <laughs> uh, so this hopefully will reach more people. Um, uh, I have two um, questions. One is sort of touching off what you just said, the fact that uh, Berkeley, like a lot of institutions, has never fired a tenure faculty. Um, and the question is the extent to which um, the tenure system as it exists today is part of this problem um, and contributes to the problem. Um, uh, and specifically the lack of accountability in the tenure system. Um, and my second question is we've been talking uh, primarily about the harassment of women by heterosexual men. Um, and uh, it was, it, I just noticed that we have not brought up the harassment of men of any sexuality, um, and to the extent that an issue with every type of harassment uh, for the harasser is shame and guilt, um, it, is there any, um, do you have any information or any sense of how that might be uh, an issue um, among men who are harassed? And on the tenure issue, um, this came up really explicitly in the Cates case at, at the University of Washington because the way I found out about the case was uh, he had been investigated, and as part of being investigated for sexual harassment, he had been put on home assignment. He was not allowed to come into his uh, very large microbiology lab at the University of Washington. And so he actually sued the university in court, which made his legal case, I mean, it was public. I was pulled up his case on PACER. Um, and he sued on the basis that him not being able to access his lab violated his, his tenure. Um, and you know that I felt like was making very explicit the claim of, of tenure should protect despite 
you know, behavioral issues like this that um, it, it isn't, from my understanding, it isn't factored in um, strongly enough. For, uh, Marcy was made by, by an automatic feature of the University of California system. Marcy was made an emeritus after he resigned due to this sexual harassment issue. So he's an emeritus professor at Berkeley now. Um, he can't teach, but in title he is. And I think there, are, there needs to be, I think, at a higher institutional level, a rethinking of, of some of these things. It, it didn't come out that Berkeley had never fired a tenured professor until we pushed on the emeritus issue and, and they said that you know they actually couldn't find anything. One professor had been fired during the McCarthy era he had then been rehired, and there's a building named after him. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but obviously, you know, tenure is also incredibly important. So those are really sticky issues. To yeah, I, I think it's real. I think tenure is really, really complex, um, and I think it's, um, and I think because of um, certainly for private universities, that this is a, this is just a. A, a area that's kept incredibly close. But I will say this, people, it, for people who've done some egregious things, including uh, sexual harassment, um, it's not that people don't get punished. People do get punished. Um, but I think what might be needed more is um, uh, an awareness across the faculty that you can get punished, uh, tenure does not protect you from everything that can happen to you in your life as a faculty member. And so, um, you know, as I said before, I was a, I was a vice provost at Harvard. I, 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 I know more about bad behavior than I care, wish I did know about it. And, um, but it's very, very difficult. It's very complicated. I think the AAUP is the one place that takes up these issues in a serious way that, that's both about pr protecting individuals but also forcing in, in institutions to be more accountable. I'm not sure I would say more transparency about those punishments is actually, is actually what's needed. Uh, and, and that's because you just can't talk about some of the things, you just can't talk about them, what's, what's happening, you know. Um, but I, I, can, I can truly say people do get punished. People do get punished. Perhaps not enough, I, 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 I can't say, but they do get punished. I mean, another issue that's been raised is if someone leaves an institution, should that follow them as they try to get a job elsewhere? And is that raises questions of is, is rehabilitation possible? How much should they People be punished? And yeah, that came up in, in the Jason Lee yep. case, yep. went to Princeton, yep. and you know it was questionable what was known, but some stuff was known. Yep. And, you know, um, and at, at, I know that obviously transparency raises a lot of issues around privacy, but um, I do think there needs to be greater transparency in terms of a handoff and in terms of thinking about how um, how to. I think that rehabilitation question is is very valid, and um, but you're not going to be able to have that conversation unless you know what the person is, what baggage the person is bringing along with them. Yeah. Oh, um, the yeah. So the, the, the discrimination and the bullying is now just starting. So there are about a decade behind the women's movement as far as um, diversity, um, because it's just been such a even more of a stigma than being a woman, if you can believe it. So, so um, yeah, I'm just like hard to believe since we're talking about all these horrible things. But um, but the data are starting to 
Yeah, they I are. think I know. Society. They are. Um, they are. So I guess we can't say the extent of the problem yet, but hopefully soon. Um, and there are a lot of um, now very public um, uh, organizations, so the groups that we mm -hmm. were talking about, mm -hmm. organizing in many of the mm -hmm. professional societies and mm -hmm. the universities that are starting to be able to talk about it more openly. So I think stay tuned in the next probably few years, you'll be able to see Thanks. that. But there aren't any yet. Yeah, there's, there, there's, I mean, I, it, it, people are becoming more aware, and, and I would say that. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to be Pollyannish about any of this. It's incredibly complicated. But there are people working very hard on that, and, and people coming forward, which is a good thing. Um, and, um, you know, even if people pay lip service by just, you know, uh, rattling off the alphabet, at least they rattle off the alphabet a little bit more. And know that the, that needs to get folded in. So I, I'm hopeful about that. I think it's. I think there's an increasing right, so, uh, exposure. Is the, is the, is the mm -hmm. organizing group, and they're. Um, they're I mean, that's not the only group, but they're helping conglomerate the other groups. And um, I'm trying to keep on this. I'm excited about that because that's been a big problem. See, so I think you know. One one, one last thing I want to say about institutional uh, and. It, speaks also to Ed's questions about professional uh, organizations. You know who I think really needs to speak up about all of this a lot more forcefully is the academies. The academies need to talk about this. The academies have published, published endless reports on underrepresentation of native-born minorities. They've published the last, what was the last one on women beyond bias and barriers? Uh, you know, nobody reads that stuff, but they do. That. Isn't that a good report? Yeah. I bought I 10 copies for my colleagues, and I think they're doorstops, <laughs> but, you know, um, but when the academy speak, people do actually listen, and it's something that provosts and academic officers and departments, it has that big a force that people do know they need to pay attention to it. I think that if the academies were to be very, very forceful about these, these uh, the things we've all been, we've been talking about this evening would make a would be a huge deal. I think Donna Shalala for for Beyond Bias and Barriers really tried, but we pushed a lot on her and said you need to be you you really need to do this on CNN. You need to do this. Uh, this needs to be not something that's just going to be put aside in the pile of National Academy reports. It needs to be understood as a critical issue, urgent critical issue for the scientific community in the U.S. to deal with. And I think it's true for everything we've talked about. It would be great if they talked about it. One question I have is, in, I mean, a, a part of gender equity in science is also having uh, female scientists re represented uh, to the same degree that men are. Um, I know, I actually read this morning that Ed Young, who's a very prominent science journalist, measures uh, how many female sources he interviews uh, as opposed to men. Uh, from a news perspective, you know, do, do you see any of that changing? I mean, I've been a freelance journalist for almost a decade. I've never had a single editor ever ask me um, anything along those lines. Um, for, for somebody that's on staff, I mean, do you see, are there changes in terms of having better representation? I mean, I think, yeah, Ed started doing that, I think, after realizing how much stuff had been skewed in his pieces, and that's awesome. He brought it up to, I think, 50%, mm -hmm. maybe even more. Um, I, my editor, I'm very lucky to work for Virginia Hughes, who kind of questions things at every turn and uh, you know, always urges me to not go to the, the one person who's always quoted, the one bioethicist <laughs> that's always quoted. You know? And I think um, Twitter is very useful for that. It's not entirely an answer, because there are obviously some people like it and some people don't. But 
in terms of sort of younger, different voices coming forward, um, and we're very aware of that and try to try to do the best we can in stories too. How about internally in terms of promoting uh, science that female scientists uh, are there changes? Are there changes from within institutions in order to to put female scientists uh, more into the spotlight? I think so. I mean, it's uneven. It's complicated, but um, I, I mean, you know, it. it it started uh, when you know people would, were being challenged about you know if you have a, a monthly colloquia, how many times do you have women scientists lead those colloquia, mm -hmm. speak at those colloquia? I mean, really pushing people to say we want to see the top women in the field at these at these kinds of, of, of gatherings that are so much a part of the, the culture that you you know that uh, expresses the values of the culture. I mean. We used to say around here, we couldn't wait till we saw a woman give the physics colloquium wearing a t-shirt and jeans, uh, because that had never happened. The women all seemed, it seemed like they used to always have to dress up and be something different. And then the first time somebody gave a talk in t-shirt and jeans, you'd think the world had just you know, flipped over or something. But um, yeah, no, I think, I think sort of making more visible uh, prizes when women win those prizes, uh, those kinds of things, uh, those are the kinds of symbolic uh, things that help, or letting a woman be a spokesperson on a major issue, mm -hmm. uh, is also a, a big a big thing. I, I, I mean, listen, I can't. Uh, there are. Um, this is coming at the time when Hidden Figures has just been this great movie nominated for Academy Award. I mean, you know, up until this movie, you know, the most probably one of the most prominent African American women scientists was Uhuru. I mean, playing a scientist <laughs> on Star Trek that more people knew about than they know about, you know, real, real living women scientists. So, I mean, this is, this is like, uh, this is like completely transformative to have, the, to have these, these uh, you know, highly skilled and, and incredible actresses portray black women scientists, my God. Um, so that means that this kind of, that kind of active, um, uh, gestures uh, to tell the stories of, of, of women and women to tell their own stories actually has force and meaning and can make the world seem different. All right. If nobody else has any questions, then um, hey, thank you guys for coming. Thank you. Thank you.